Francis Tarwater is a teenage boy who has been raised in near isolation by his great uncle, Marion Tarwater, somewhere in the deepest backwaters of the American South. The elder Tarwater has been preparing the boy to be a prophet of God in the line of Old Testament prophets like Jonah, Daniel, and Elijah. But Tarwater reacts to his great uncle's death by first getting drunk and second burning down their old farmhouse called Powderhead with, as far as he knows, old Tarwater's body still inside, unburied in defiance of the old man's most consistent demand that the boy bury him in proper Christian fashion. After starting the fire, Tarwater flees Powderhead for the big city, there to confront his only other living relative, his uncle Ray Bear, an academic who has emphatically rejected old Tarwater, his beliefs, and his way of life. Today, in the first of a four-episode series, we are discussing the first half of the first section of Flannery O'Connor's second and final novel, The Violent Bear It Away. The strange and bleak landscape of the novel seems first of all to ask us, has God withdrawn from the created world? If so, why? What kind of people are driven or called to be prophets in such a world? What does O'Connor mean by violence? Is there such a thing as sacred violence? Can we ever hope for grace in a world where the voice of God has become so distant and the light of the sun so dim? This is the Key to All Mythologies podcast, and here is Elijah with the opening question. Okay, so for today's meeting, we read the first chapter of The Violent Bear It Away by Flannery O'Connor, published in 1960. And at the beginning of the book, protagonist Tarwater is conflicted over whether he ought to bury or cremate his uh, great uncle who has just died. Um, So my question to you all today, uh, what's at stake in this conflict? What other conflicts, questions, themes, ideas does this conflict represent? Some things you might think about is the preoccupation with the dead in this chapter, memory, tradition, religion, etc. I was reviewing the memory, the the memory that Tarwater had of a discussion with the uncle, when the uncle's laying in the pine box that he built. Such a strange thing, but I suppose you got to see if it fits, right? And the elder Tarwater expresses this concern that that if he was given over to the school teacher, the school teacher would elect to cremate him rather than bury him in the ground. Maybe out of spite, but it seems like part of uh, the elder uncle's concern is that uh, bodily resurrection as a tenant of belief is important to him. If his body is burned and his ashes scattered, then he's not recognizable to the Lord and it would be impossible for him to be reconciled. I think I was trying to, I was trying to think through some of the verses that this reading brought to mind. And there were obviously copious biblical allusions. I'm sure we can discuss some of the more interesting ones, but I was trying to think about any verses that involved cremation of remains. I can't think of any examples in the Bible of anyone being burned right? There's a ton, there's always a lot of, I mean, people are obviously buried, put into, you know, sarcophagi and caves and all, all manner of things, but I can't think of any instance of cremation in, in the Bible. I don't know if anyone can think of one, but it seemed to me that, that it was an unbiblical, and in that sense, like a modern way of dealing with the dead. In, ter- in terms of customs, it's not something that the Jews or the early Christians practiced is what you're getting at. 
Right. I think right. that's certainly right. Yeah. Well, there's and literally I, a theological controversy over it because it, it's, you know, literally believe that, yeah, if the body wasn't disposed of properly and also facing the proper direction, you couldn't come back on judgment day, which is why they buried suicides the other direction and stuff. I was also wondering if the pool was something that put them into opposition or marked them out as, as an oppositional culture to the Roman and Greek civilizations, right? Because I think there was a lot of ritual burning of bodies in those cultures. And we saw some examples of that in, in Ovid and other previous books we've read, right? Yeah, I think all of this is right. I think the, the question I wanted to think through you guys, think through with you guys is, uh, if we take this theological controversy, controversy over burial, if we take it as like a metonym for like a constellation of problems and concerns that the novel has, like, what do we think those are? How do we see them sort of defined in this first chapter? I also think part of this question in some way is uh, vocations or Tarwater's understanding of what it means to be a prophet, like his changing understanding of the vocation and the different sort of competing ideas of freedom that we see. It also has to do a lot with how much he or how he like thinks of the legitimacy of his uncle. Right. Cause that's where, that's when he starts like going back and forth is when, you know, the voice in his head starts starting to convince him that his uncle's crazy. And so it seems like that sort of undoes the legitimacy of the request. When there's two competing notions of what it means to be dead, right? The, the stranger that you're referring to, Paul, he makes the claim, you can't be any poorer than dead. Right. The uncle makes like almost the exact opposite claim. There's a million more dead people than alive. The world is made for the dead. Now, I'll say generally what I think is interesting about O'Connor is that so she's a Catholic and she's concerned about, you know, eternal things in some sense. But she's also a really keen eyed cultural critic. And she's sort of putting her finger on the currents of modernity, I think, in interesting ways and in, in trying to bring out what's latent there. And we saw this really clearly when we read Wise Blood, right? The city is like a capitalistic nightmare, <laughs> uh, you know, a capitalistic horror show, talking him, the city and Wise Blood. And so thinking about Wise Blood and, and trying to think of what Flannery O'Connor brings out in her characters, what seems to be a through line there. And I thought about how a character with a religious or pseudo-religious commitment the commitment affects their behaviors and in turn the character's individual personality affects how they express their religion i was thinking about enoch emery's ritual with the mummy or preparing the space for the little mummy and so he's got a pseudo religious commitment and he behaves strangely making this space in his apartment and then on the other hand his strange personality causes him to to steal the mummy and take it away so you're thinking that that is a he develops some sort of religious commitment to this the idol and why i mean in wise blood the religious commitment to the idol and that commitment transcends the law and that's what, I mean, that's, that's what marks the, like, one thing that we get here is the uncle, the great uncle and Tarwater go into the city 
and he wants the great uncle wants to cut the teacher, the school teacher, Ray Bear, out of the will, right? And just pass on this property to directly to Tarwater. And the lawyer's like, I can't, that's not, I didn't write the law. I didn't write this will. You, you know, I don't, you would have a choice about this. And right. the, the uncle doesn't under, you know, the great uncle doesn't understand there's two different meanings of the word will here. And he doesn't, it's like just at that level of the very literal meaning of it at the legal meaning of it and the metaphysical meaning of it. You kind of see they're all jumbled up, you know? And the uncle wants to say there's a will that the will of the Lord that is higher than this written will, this legal testament. And the lawyer's like, just puts his head in his hands and like shakes his head back and forth. It's like, it was this maniac. Why would he go away? And he goes to, he goes to lawyer after lawyer yeah. expecting a different they, result. But it points out the conflict for Tarwater is that he can understand, right? That every lawyer, lawyers are not going to, like the meaning of being a lawyer is that you just interpret the law. They're all going to interpret it the same way, you know? It's like the law is this unified thing that speaks through them. And Tarwater wants to find, or the, the uncle, yeah. great uncle, wants to find uh, some sort of unique personal connection with the lawyer through which he can, so he can kind of like express his higher understanding of will and law. And the lawyers are just like, and the the... The nephew at least realizes like you're never gonna find that you're you're mad that's one of the things that he thinks to himself he's crazy you know why am i stuck with this crazy guy but i mean that's that goes that you know in terms of the the burial of the dead being kind of of a metonym for this set of problems that's a big one right the individual being called by the lord cannot exist within a legal framework as the lawyers understand it I mean, that's just not those those two kinds of ways of thinking are not able to be i uh, think i think uh obama made a speech once i just remember this dimly obama made a speech once and he was talking about religions and he's like listen if somebody's up on a roof thinking they're going to sacrifice their kid because god told them to like maybe they did really hear god but we can't let them do that right <laughs> so, yeah i don't know if he mentioned kierkegaard or not right but that's like the very question at the heart of fear and trembling yeah but I mean, a sort of funny moment at the beginning of the book. Well, and we don't know where this is chronologically necessarily, but the prophet Elder Tarwater is sort of vituperating against the city and wagging his finger, expecting God to smite it. And then God instead, you know, smites the prophet and burns. <laughs> uh, what's the language here? This is page five. So he's expecting the Lord to destroy the city. He's raging. Then one morning, he saw to his joy a finger of fire coming out of it. And before he could turn, before he could shout, the finger had touched him, right? Not the city. And the destruction he had been waiting for had fallen in his own brain, in his own body. His own blood had been burned dry and not the blood of the world. Prophets in this book are not sort of unequivocal heroes. And I mean, there's something comic about the image of the uncles preaching against the city. And then he ends up being the recipient of the Lord's wrath in some sort of profound way that transforms him but painful right profound but painful way is i guess what i'm getting at in response to what you were saying adam is it's not a similar it's not a simple dichotomy of like profit good city bad there's something more complicated going on yeah i had wondered if if that passage meant to suggest that the elder tarwater had actually been struck by lightning i mean some people survive that Maybe he was. We often, in the, when we read the epics, when reading through the epics, we sometimes think about like what a naturalistic reading of a 
act of a god or a myth would look like. And you can you perform the same kind of exercise here, right? I mean, the, the novel obviously leaves you, leaves open the possibility, although I don't think it's really uh, faithful to O'Connor's style or her interests, but I mean, the, the possibility of just reading him as just a crazy old man, you know, is certainly available to you as a reader. So I want to tie in a couple of these things because the, the description is really keen there, right? So it's, it's talking about the sun in particular. So it says, um, he proclaimed from the midst of his fury that the world would see the sun burst in blood and fire. And while he raged and waited, it rose every morning, calm and contained itself as if not only the world, but the Lord himself had failed to hear the prophet's message. It rose and set, rose and set. And there I can't help but hear Ecclesiastes, right? On a world that turned from green to white and green to white and green to white again. It rose and set, and he despaired of the Lord's listening. Then one morning he saw, to his joy, a finger of fire coming out of it, that's the sun, before he could turn, before he could shout, the finger had touched him, and the destruction had been his waiting for the fallen in his own brain and his body. His blood had been burned dry and not the blood of the world. So the meaning of that is completely obscure, right? Like that is, I cannot make sense of that sentence yet, other than some kind of beam of light seems to have burned him up. And then when it talks about his burial, basically the stranger's talking and he's saying, you know, well, does this idea that if you bury people, does it really make much sense, right? What's God going to do with the sailors drowned at sea that the fish have eaten, the fish that ate them and the other fish and they ate, but yet others. And what about the people that burned up naturally in house fires, but burnt one way or another, lost their machines until their, their pulp and all those soldiers, soldiers, but blasted to nothing. What about all those that there's nothing left of to burn or bury? And Tarwater's response to the younger Tarwater says, if I burnt him, it wouldn't be natural it would be deliberate, which, which really dodges the theological aim of it, right? He's saying, no, there's some level of intent, you know, there's some kind of deliberate in there, right? That has a connotation of a crime that if I set out to burn him, I've acted in such a way on his body that I don't have the right to do, that it's not the natural, that's not God's will, that's not the sun rising. And then the stranger says, oh, I see. It ain't the day of judgment you're worried about. It's the day of judgment for you. He says, that's my business, Business, Tarwater said. The stranger says, I ain't buttoned your business. The stranger said, I don't mean a thing to me. You're left by yourself in this empty place, forever by yourself in this empty place with just as much light at that dwarf sun wants to let in. You don't mean a thing to a soul as far as I can see. Redeemed, Tarwater muttered. And then he goes on. So there's this, there's this motif throughout the story that I can't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a symbol or anything, but it's this motif of the sunlight that just kind of like dangles on the horizon. And it seems like Elder Tarwater consistently interprets it as, you know, the agency of God. And it seems like even the stranger seems to be acknowledging that, that, that um, his criticism of the younger Tarwater is that you're tied to the empty patch of land and a dwarf sun. And that indeed this, that there are people burnt up by God's will, or there, there's some kind of action of that. I well, can't throw it yeah. all together, but well, that's where two, I'm going. I think this is really great, Greg, two thoughts on that first, right? So this story is set in 1952, 
right? Book comes out in 1960. It's set in 1952. And, uh, in 1952, people are talking a lot about the Holocaust. They're talking a lot about atomic bombs, right? The question of people being burned up is like a real vital one, right? And that question has to cause us to think about, and he, she mentioned soldiers, right? Or yeah. a stranger does. So that has to cause, I mean, right, this whole question takes on a different sort of significance in the modern world. <laughs> That's my first point. My second point would be, so in a letter, uh, O'Connor is writing around the time she started writing this novel, she writes to one of her friends, she says, witness how individual saints go through the dark night of the soul. Seems like right now the whole world is going through its dark night, right? That's mm-hmm. in the mid 50s, she writes that, right? And so if you take the sun to represent something like God's communication, God's presence, whatever, whatever, consistently throughout this chapter, it's descri- described in diminutive terms, right? The dwarf sun, the sun barely peeked through, mm-hmm. right? This is a world where this is a world where if God's speaking, it's, it's not being heard. And, and right. The dark night of the soul, of course, if the whole world going through the dark night of the soul is kind of equivalent to Nietzsche's death of God, except the difference is if you accept the dark night of the soul hypothesis, right. What is the dark night? It's a time when you can't sense God's presence that actually leads you to greater faith or greater depth of understanding or greater self-mortification or whatever. Right. That's St. John of the cross. But this is Nietzsche's world that Tarwater's in, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that helps at all what you're thinking. Yeah, I think it does. Because yeah, I keep wanting to tie this. So, so he says, right, his big problem is that it's, it's, not, natu- it's not natural to, to burn the dead. But then as he goes along the process, he also finds it's just as unnatural, I think, in some sense to bury the dead because um, it takes so long to bury him and it's so hot. And he also kind of almost goes without saying that he has to do it himself, right? He has to do it alone with a shovel. It can't be like with the machine. It can't be a group of people, something that's like a burden that's just for him. Which I think is one of the other questions that we're dealing with here, which is kind of a question of like efficiency, group efficiency or mechanical efficiency versus the inefficiency of like an individual acting alone in nature and that those two sort of ways of thinking about a task, you know, cause the, the stranger, and I think we, I would like to also go back and think about the moment where Tarwater or the great uncle <laughs> dies um, and who, what the stranger is and when the stranger comes on the scene, but the stranger over and over again says the school mass, the school teacher would just burn the body in 15 seconds, you know? And here you are in the hot sun for hours digging a 10 foot deep hole. You know, it's a waste of your time. Well, it's, it's interesting because it's a stranger. It, uh, there's no reason the stranger is invested, or there's no given reason why the stranger is invested in convincing him otherwise. Like the stranger is dead set against tar water doing the grave. And eventually the stranger succeeds, right? Tar water goes, finds the still, rolls back the boulder very symbolically, pulls out the jug of alcohol gets wasted mm-hmm. and I, I don't know who it is that finishes it i guess it's the other guy who attends or is it the stranger yeah. who who finishes the digging the uh, grave bunsen the bunsen the other yeah buford bunsen the black guy who lives out in the who lives out in the deep woods with his wife they finish it i think yeah the yeah. first sentence says that i think yeah yeah i remember so so i mean the stranger is successful ultimately but um no, he's he not seems successful. to be 
because the, the stranger gets him to stop digging it though that's it yeah, seems yeah. like that's what the stranger's intention but if the goal of the stranger is to have him burn is to have the old man burned rather than buried he doesn't he's not successful with that oh yeah but it just seems like he's after tar water like it doesn't mm. seem like he he's terribly invested in any the old man means nothing to him but he just wants to see what he can do to this boy yeah and like the argument like you know is a waste of your time is an insane one he, he, that boy has nothing to do but time <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't know i think it's a pretty powerful argument especially if you're like you yeah uh, to me, that's a real moment of like moral decision. It's like I could do this task much more efficiently in a less meaningful way or something, you know, and that's, I mean, it's an easy decision f- for an adjusted, a well-adjusted modern person to make, you know, but it's much rather not dig than dig. Yeah. 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 It's a lot more of a pain in the ass to dig a, dig a grave than to burn a body. I guess what I mean is if you're faced with that, it's only a decision if there's like a moral problem in the background, right? If it's just like a problem of efficiency, the answer is obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to go back. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I just wanted to throw out another passage that I think touches on this dilemma that's going on, but it's, it's when after a pause, he continued the way I see it. He said, you can do one of two things. One of them, not both. This is, this is uh, Tarwater that's speaking. Nobody can do both of the two things without straining themselves. You can do one thing or you can do the opposite. Jesus to the devil, the boy said. No, 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 the stranger said. There ain't no such thing as a devil. I can tell you that from my own self-experience. I know that for a fact. It ain't Jesus or the devil. It's Jesus or you. And so I think that goes along with this this issue that we're trying to draw out because he's getting the boy to choose himself or yeah, his own self, which obviously is tied into, you know, religious themes of pride and ego and et cetera, et cetera. But anyways, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Cause I think that's a really important passage that we should think about. When it's interesting because he, the boy Tarwater wants to choose himself, but he also wants to be a prophet, but he wants to be a prophet in a really like romantic version of it. And I was sort of tracking as he was thinking to himself, he thinks of people like David, right? Who's essentially like an epic hero. He lists all David and Moses and all that. The one name he never mentions is Jonah. And Jonah is the archetype for him, right? Jonah is the prophet who hates the city, right? And is resentful when God shows more mercy to the city than he would. That's the sort of archetype. And there's nothing really sort of noble about Jonah, right? Jonah is sort of this pathetic character who, who tries to escape from God. And I think, yeah, it's interesting that he never reflects on Jonah. Tarwater never reflects on Jonah when he's thinking about his own vocation, but he thinks about, he thinks about being a prophet in a sort of very modern autonomous sense of the, of the word. His claim for independence is complicated, but I do think that's fundamentally what it is. And I think this passage is the clearest expression of that. Yeah. He he thinks of when the the old man, the uncle goes into the woods and wrestles with God in the woods for days on end and then comes home and he's bedraggled and starving and bearded. And that's then, then Tarwater thinks now he looks like a prophet. That's the way a prophet should look, you know, when they go into the city and he's just kind of this strange character out of step with everyone around him. Then he, the boy is embarrassed for himself and for the uncle. Right. He wants the uncle to thunder in a sort of cinematic way. Right. 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 I thought I'd point to the, images that that Tarwater called to mind when he shakes off the notion that he might have to 
baptize the dim-witted boy. He don't mean for me to finish up your leavings, Tarwater says to the old man. He has other things in mind for me. And he thought of Moses, who struck water from a rock, of Joshua, who made the sun stand still, of Daniel, who stared down lions in the pit. So, as Elijah was saying, young Tarwater is imagining being a prophet and having this godly power over over the natural world somehow that's the fantasy yeah that's right one and to connect some of these things that have just been said right paul brings us to this passage right the fundamental choice is jesus or you seems like if you choose jesus you bury the uncle in the traditional way right if you choose you it is you take the modern efficient way Right. And as Adam pointed out, and I think it's right, right. Cremation is not supposed to be some desecration of the body or even some like pagan ritual. Right. It's the appeal of it to the stranger. Right. Is that it is efficient. Right. (laughs) Which has to do with the idea. Right. You can't be any poorer than dead. Right. From like a sort of strictly materialist view. It's silly to see dead bodies as anything other than that, which needs to be disposed of as quickly as possible. And so the burning is not. The burning option is not archaic, but it's actually a very, very modern temptation. The reasons he would be burning it are the supremely modern ones. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably worth noting. He doesn't actually, he doesn't burn the body. He burns the house down, which is slightly different and less kind of, perhaps less a piece of like cold calculation. If we also think of the Ray Bear when they, when they go into the city, and they meet when Tarwater sees Ray Bear for the first time, and they see the little, the dim-witted boy for the first time. The Ray Bear himself says, you know, he's going to be mentally, he'll be five years old for his life. And I think he says he's completely useless, which is a very cold, almost like unbelievable. I mean, it strains belief, I think, that, I mean, you know, that anyone would say that. But it, yeah, it's, I mean, it fits in with the logic of, of the stranger's logic of efficiency, you know, to say that this, that a dim-witted person is completely useless. In terms of the, the statement that it sort of uh, beggars belief, I think O'Connor is in the, the Dostoevskyan tradition where her characters are, are so consumed by their ideas. You're like, people aren't really like this. But, but nonetheless, the, I find the characters at least compelling, but they're not sort of realistic in the way a Tolstoy character would be. Yeah, no, I, mean, yeah. I think, yeah, as with Dostoevsky, there's a kind of a dance between the character as a representation of a, a set of thoughts that are you know percolating in society and as an actual human being i think what in raber right is the is the ultra modern example the ultra modern thinker and yeah. uh, i i thought i assume moments, he's supposed to be like a logical positivist or something that's kind of his something uh, like that yeah he's not it's kind of explicit but i mean he's a school teacher he's like some sort of writer anthropologist you know has that sort of an anthropologist disposition towards the great uncle i don't think he's going to match up perfectly but he's he's definitely like a w wv quine type character yeah. or something I, I was going to say the great uncle's sort of umbrage his outrage at the teacher's article or give us some of the most delightful moments in the book <laughs> he tried to capture I, me i love when he's in the lawyer's office and he starts going over the story again and he just it's just such a i mean he's a prophet or whatever but he's also just like an old man he just like keeps going over the same grievances over he can't think about anything else so that seems realistic <laughs>
the thought that I sort of had since you brought up the old man and his concern with how he was represented in the school teacher's article. He talks about how if young Tarwater had been with the school teacher, that Tarwater would become a piece of information in the school teacher's mind. And that motif uh, stuck with me of how elder Tarwater is concerned about somehow being reduced to a concept or a number. And I think it resonates with the concern over cremation because he would be reduced to ashes and not retain some sort of embodiment that's there for the final day of judgment. So I'm thinking something about the school teacher's reductive study of the old man is doing something akin to what cremation would do after the old man dies. Well, on a related note, so Raber says that Bishop, right, the little boy's name is Bishop, is useless. Old Tarwater has a sort of equally outrageous take on the case, right? He says the Lord made him that way to protect him from essentially being secularized or something, right? So again, it's not like, uh, yeah, both of these are sort of uh, outrageous, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, any thoughts on that moment? Or <laughs> One thing that I noticed reading it through again this time, for one thing, it's his name is Bishop and the wife's last name is Bishop. So either he's just calling him by his last name and never gave him a first name or his name is Bishop Bishop. And those are both kind of strange possibilities. I'm assuming that the point is that Rayburn just never bothered to give him a first name. I'm not really sure what that means exactly. But also, I just a more general point, we can't really... I don't think play this out until we read the whole book together, but I, there's like the, the, the lack of women, the lack of femininity is very striking and really seemed important to me reading it through a second time to the point where the, the, the only moment of what you might call like sweetness or, or kindness in the first chapter is when uh, <clears throat> after Tarwater's died and, or after the, <laughs> After the great uncle has died and Tarwater is working on the grave and what's his name? The Buford, Buford Munson. Buford Munson. Yeah. Buford Munson and his wife come to get their jugs filled. Uh, also very symbolically. Not, the, the word jug comes up several times and uh, there's several parables involving jugs and washerwomen and stones being rolled away. But the, the wife says, poor sweet sugar boy, the woman said to Tarwater. What are you going to do here now by yourself in this lonesome place? And I think it's the only time in the chapter when someone addresses Tarwater in a way that seems like just like genuinely concerned for his well-being, you know, and like thinking about him as kind of an emotional, you know, agent or just like, yeah. And it really struck me this time that there's a, that this is a very masculine world this is taking place in. You know, all the women are dead in car crashes or disappeared or just or you know, whatever, been called whores by the uncle and dismissed. And it's just, and that seems, I think is something that we'll see only and kind of intensifies the novelism. Yeah, looking just forward a little bit, the only other woman I can think of is there's the little girl who sort of gives that sermon at the storefront church, that little precocious girl, the handicapped girl. And I think that's it. Yeah, and when they're in the, uh, <clears throat> when they're in the hotel later, the hotel sort of matron is very kind to them which is another moment of a different kind of energy entering this very 
hothouse little little world of of uh, strong strong-willed bizarre men well and then we also have the two african-american people they come and they do i was thinking a lot about vico while i was reading this chapter because right fundamental to humanity is celebrating you know births deaths and weddings the only people you have who make any sort of attempt at sort of properly mourning this figure are these two sort of you know african-american poor people right they're sort of like dirt farmers or something and uh, tar water sort of chases them off as they try to sort of uh, honor the dead right she set her jug down on the ground and crossed her arms and then lifted them up in the air and wailed again tell her to shut up that i'm in charge here tarwater replies right and they're not i don't get the sense that they're mourning because they were so fond of the old man or something but they're sort of it's just a moment of as you were saying adam it's a moment of human decency and sort of right this world is so degraded and there's like this one little attempt that we can identify of somebody trying to preserve some dignity in this otherwise otherwise degraded world even in the first like the very first sentence of the novel right they're worried about the dog the dogs digging up the body if it's not buried deep enough right it's just there's nothing romantic about this world at all yeah Yeah. and she just she just intuitively you want to say or spontaneously is like oh you you know poor thing what are you going to do here alone in this old house and everyone else in a way i don't um, Buford is kind of a different case I think he sort of gets down to business and buries the body but she doesn't seem to represent any kind of yeah ideology or set of beliefs or anything she just says she just wants to she's just sad she's sad and worried about a little kid you know a confused little kid and that's like the only moment of that kind of response in this chapter anyway do you guys want to read the moment where the uncle dies because I think we should talk about what the what the stranger is supposed to be who the stranger is supposed to be it's page 11 uh, so the old man has died over the breakfast table he was a bull-like old man with a short head set directly into his shoulders and silver protruding eyes that looked like two fish straining to get out of a net of red threads he had on a putty colored hat with a brim turned up all around and over his undershirt a gray coat that had once been black Tarwater, sitting across the table from him saw red ropes appear in his face and a tremor pass over him. It was like the tremor of a quake that had begun at his heart and run outward and was just reaching the surface. His mouth twisted down sharply on one side, and he remained exactly as he was, perfectly balanced, on his back a good six inches from the chair back, and his stomach caught just under the edge of the table. His eyes, dead silver, were focused on the boy across from him. Tarwater felt the tremor transfer itself and run lightly over him. He knew the old man was dead without touching him, and he continued to sit across the table from the corpse, finishing his breakfast in a kind of sullen embarrassment, as if he were in the presence of a new personality and couldn't think of anything to say. Finally, he said in a querulous tone, just hold your horses. I already told you I would do it right. The voice sounded like a stranger's voice, as if the death had changed him instead of his great uncle. So then he gets up, goes out back there's roosters running around he thinks about it, he has to start burying the old man and then about three-fourths the way down the page he says i'm going to move that fence tarwater said i ain't going to have any fence i own in the middle of a patch <laughs> the voice was loud and strange and disagreeable inside his head it continued you ain't the owner the school teacher owns it so that's the first thing that the stranger says i think 
And then they sort of start to talk to each other. He describes his outfit. And the stranger says, bury him first and get it over with. The loud stranger's disagreeable voice said, he got up and went to look for the shovel. So there's a confusion, I think, in the sense of where the stranger, when the stranger enters the narrative Mm -hmm. and where he's kind of positioned spatially with regards to Tarwater. Is he in Tarwater's head? Sometimes it seems like he's speaking from behind or from somewhere else. He sometimes he seems to be speaking through Tarwater, but in a voice that doesn't recognize as his own. There's there's one point where he's he's described as having almost physical characteristics, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I want to mention also between those two moments you read, Adam, right? So I, I think this novel is about the, the dark night of the soul of the world in part. So right at the bottom of page 12, right after the first time the stranger talks, it says, putting you inside Tarwater's head, the Lord may send you off, he thought. There was a complete stillness over everything in the boy felt his heart begin to swell. He held his breath as if he were about to hear a voice from on high. After a few moments, he heard a hen scratching beneath him under the porch. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is the first time when God is supposed to show up or speak and he's not there. Mm -hmm. Right. The, 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 you know, I would take this as evidence of the dark night, dark night of the world, right. The withdrawal from God, God's withdrawal from this world. Right. So I think the place we have the stranger, right. Right. So he seems to fill this vacuum that God leaves. And I think you can, I mean, to me, the possibilities are like, it's in just an inner, mo- an interior dialogue that Tarwater is having with himself. You know, the death of the uncle has given freer reign to these, the quarrelous thoughts that he's had with the uncle this whole time anyway. You can think of it as like the voice of the school teacher somehow coming in to Tarwater's head. You can, I mean, I guess you think of like possession. I think there's the yeah, possibility that he's possessed by some kind of madness or just a straightforward like demonic possession. I mean, there seems like all these readings seem available to me. What's strange about this moment where you started us on page 11, Tarwater felt the tremor, right? His uncle's tremor transfer itself and run lightly over him, mm-hmm. right? There's a real sort of biblical tradition of like prophets passing down their, the mantle, the anointing, whatever, right? Yeah, okay. uh, Elijah and Elisha is one example. And so you, so you think like, oh, he's getting the uncle's powers or whatever, right? The mm-hmm. uncle's vocation. But then the very first thing that happens is this voice shows up that that can't stand the uncle, right? That's the uncle's enemy in some way. So it's not clear. Yeah. I mean, is that a moment where he is? The uncle certainly more or less says in here, right? Once I die, you're taking over my post, right? Mm. As the Lord's prophet in Powderhead. And there's a moment of ambivalence because there is some sort of transfer. Just what that transfer is, is not clear. Yeah. And yeah. immediately you have the stranger showing up speaking like you said through Tarwater's voice strange at first and then increasingly familiar yeah. over the course of the chapter and with very like devilish arguments right i mean those are especially what we read before about that what about all the people that drown at sea and got eaten by fish and all the soldiers blown up and you know they don't have bodies anymore and all that and that's a very like reminiscent of the kind of things that the devil says in other contexts i think well it's it's very like uh, ivan karamazov's argument with the devil you know mm-hmm. that he's um hallucinating i think we should read the part where the boy drinks the first time really closely because i think it really ties all of these things we're talking about together so the buforts have come over and they're starting to attend to the grave and then um he's gone to to fill their jug and the stranger's talking and he says 
any man 70 years of age to bring a baby out in the backwoods to raise him right. Suppose he had died when you were four years old instead of 14. Could you have toted mash to the still then and supported yourself? I never heard of no four-year-old running a still. Never did I hear of that. He continued, right? And that he's, he is implied to be the stranger. You weren't anything to him, but something that would grow big enough to bury when the time came. And now that he's dead, he shut you out of it. You got 250 pounds of him to put below the faith of the earth. And don't you think you would heat up like a coal stove to see you take a drop of liquor, right? So the cremation, the stranger is connecting to the practice of him taking alcohol himself, which is exactly what he's about to do. Though he had a weakness for himself and he couldn't stand the Lord one instant longer, he got drunk, profit or no profit. And that seems to be an allusion to the earlier part of the book when it mentioned that he's desolate for God's word and then that flame of fire touches him and ignites him. He might say it would hurt you, but he meant you might get so much you wouldn't be in no fit condition to bury him, He, which is what's going to happen. He said he brought you out here to raise you according to a principle, and that was the principle, that you should be fit when the time came to bury him so that he would have a cross to mark where he was at, right? So it's ironic because the stranger seems to be making this argument that like, oh, you exist for one purpose, and that's to bury this man. And to the stranger, that seems a worthless thing. But it's very easy to take this stranger's language and recognize it as like a theological purpose, right? To to bring the cross to this prophet and mark him as such. Well, it's also, I think when I say it's devilish, I think that's what I mean is that it's very, the voice of the devil always wants to reduce everything to like selfishness, right? Selfishness and meanness and to the lowest motivations. And that is what the stranger is doing here, right? He's turning everything the uncle has done into a kind of, and he says, you know, you got to expect old men to be selfish. You got to expect the least of them. Mm-hmm. And the expecting the least of everyone is a very like classically devil, <laughs> devilish way of thinking, I guess. I don't know how to say it. Right. So he says, a prophet with a still, he's the only prophet I ever heard of making liquor for a living. After a minute, he said in a softer tone as the boy took on a long swallow from the black jug. Well, a little won't interfere. Moderation won't never hurt no one. And then it says, I think this is really striking, a burning arm slid down Tarwater's throat as if the devil were already reaching inside him to finger his soul. And the way back in the beginning, right, it was mentioned that, you know, he was looking out and, and a finger of fire was what touched the elder Tarwater and, and fingered him. He squinted at the angry sun now, you know, creeping behind the topmost fringe of trees, which is also striking because it's noon. And so even in this noonday, highest sun, the sun is barely visible. And then all of a sudden, take it easy, his friend said. This stranger is a stranger no longer. He's now with this like consummate drink, which is obviously, you know, uh, inversion of the baptism or the Eucharist, right? He's drinking alcohol or wine or something. Um, the stranger has shifted to friend. With that one, oh, yeah. that's good. Is that the first time he's called a friend? Yeah, uh, and then he's yeah. called his kind friend after yeah, he gives a speech right. on "Don't that's drink good. too much, or you'll or you'll look like." Yeah, that, like that that transformation is exactly tied to going down to the still, pulling the stone open, the sun glaring at him as he as he takes the sip and it consummates it. When I think the presence of religious forms there is important, right? It's not a religious but it's like a different form of religion that is parasitic on on the christian norms standards myths however you want to say it stories 
symbols. Symbols is probably the word. Do you, you think you can spell that point out a little bit? Right. He's rolling back the stone in right. order to, right, which is inversion of the symbol of, of rolling back the, the stone that, you know, held Christ in the grave. And he's drinking this liquor and it's somewhat like Eucharist. I'm not really sure actually where to take it other than there's a religious form about these things, which I think Greg spelled out really nicely. Well, and then you have the character Meeks. You get his name in the beginning of chapter two, that the salesman he meets, the salesman who tells him that uh, love is the only policy that works 95% of the time. Right at the very end, Meeks is talking about the dead. And maybe we can look at that and sort of put it in constellation with the stranger, what the stranger says. So this is like the last couple paragraphs. So he catches up with the salesman who sells copper flues. He said love was the only policy that worked 95% of the time. He talks about visiting this client and uh, the man's wife had cancer. So he writes cancer in his book and asks about her every time that he comes. Then he scratched out the word cancer and wrote dead there when she died. And I say, thank God when they're dead, the salesman said. That's one less thing to remember. You don't owe the dead anything, Tarwater said in a loud voice speaking for almost almost the first time since he got in the car nor are they you said the stranger right which is interesting because it's meeks the stranger but it's also the stranger and that's the way it ought to be in this world nobody owing nobody nothing um and then tarwater gets confused about whether they're going he confuses the fire that he just set in the city lights and he can't tell which is which which is also an interesting moment yeah but how does this sort of Right. The salesman is like obviously deeply cynical and has the same sort of I don't does he have the same sort of attitude as the stranger toward death or is there a sort of slight modification there? At least towards memory, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like it's like a matter of efficiency towards him. I also thought that section was really interesting too, not to move away from your point, Elijah, but the the piece about not owing anything and that being like the point that's how the world ought to be when like in the beginning of this chapter the notion of charity comes up over and over and over and it's like it's capitalized and seems to have this like favorable attitude towards charity and like what the uncle's doing for tar water and all this stuff but I also find that weird as well because I mean I I know that we're it's this book is not trying to be like one-dimensionally moralistic but there's certainly like a moralizing going on here. I'm, I don't think we have read enough to say what that is yet, but there is morals are like everywhere on this, in this chapter. And so I think it's worth thinking about, but like, I found myself seeing like when, even when the stranger is obviously being like the devil, as Adam has said, his criticisms of the old man, the uncle are right generally <laughs> like he's an he's an idiot he's he's taking this kid he's stealing him kidnapping him taking him out into the woods teaching him to be a moonshiner like, it's like well this is no context to raise a kid and and it's talked about as charity work like what what is going on here like is what twisted moral moral is that is that portraying especially when like it does seem like at least ostensibly you know, the boy should have buried the, you know, like if our thesis of like modernity is kind of evil, the efficiency of modernity is kind of cynical and, and um, wrong, but like the, the, and so therefore like the, 
the old man's desire to be buried in like the Christian way is, is like so important. It's like, how are we supposed to read this character of the uncle? Cause he seems like he's doing all sorts of bad things, but he's, we're supposed to see him as some sort of like, you know, but or not buttress, but like some sort of, um, you know, holding up like what morality should be in some weird way, or at least like his attitude towards remembering the dead is correct. And that seems to be really, really important. And like stands as maybe um, an antidote, antidote in to this modern problem that we've been talking about. I don't know. I just find that, that this to be very, very strange. I, I find myself almost like agreeing with the salesman in light of this. It's like, if that's what charity means, is like, maybe I do just think we shouldn't owe anyone anything. I don't know. I'm just trying to like play devil's advocate here, I suppose. But so far, this picture of the uncle has made the morals of this text really, really questionable to me. You're looking specifically at this third paragraph. Is that what you're thinking of, Paul, when you think of the talk about charity? Or is there another... The third paragraph at the very beginning. Is that kind of what you're thinking about? Yeah, it's where he says he's staying at the, at, when he's staying at Rainbow's house, right? Yeah. I don't, well, so, but it's all through throughout. Mm-hmm. I think that just as a more general point, Great. I think that uh, you're right, Paul. And I think an interesting, uh, interesting idea that's being pursued here is that a prophet would almost have to be stupid, <laughs> or at least like appear stupid and crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. And that part of the, almost like the, I mean, stupid isn't the right word, but, but. I think it is though, because this. Not clever, right? Not not self-reflective, not. I mean, what does the stranger say about why the school teacher doesn't go along with him? Is it because he's too smart, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think the issue is squarely about intelligence. There is, um, when the school teacher comes to pick up, uh, the boy so he's taken the shotgun out and he says if you take a step i'll shoot you and then the welfare woman just sighs and that gets the school teacher moving he's like you know it seems like part of the sin of the school teacher is he's completely controlled by this woman and the nephew lifted his foot playing on the step and the old man shot him in the leg he recalled for the boy's benefit the nephew's expression of outraged righteousness look that had so infuriated him that he raised the gun slightly higher and shot him again, this time taking a wedge out of his ear. The second shot flushed the righteousness off his face and left it blank and white, revealing that there was nothing underneath it, revealing the old man sometimes admitted his own failure as well, for he had tried and failed long ago to rescue the nephew. He had kidnapped him when the child was seven and had taken him in the backwoods and baptized him and instructed him the facts of redemption. But the instruction only lasted in a few years. And in time, the, the child had set himself on a different course. There were moments when he thought he would have helped the nephew on his new course. Himself, he became so heavy in the old man that he would stop telling the story to Tarwater, stop and stare in front of him if he were looking into a pit which had opened up food for his feet. So it seems like the text is equating the school teacher's righteousness to the old man's. It's almost like righteousness is is almost genetic disease among these men, but that it pales away. I I couldn't help there. There There's a script essay once read on the word of Paul in early 20th century poetry and how it just keeps up coming again and again, both in double connotation of to turn white and to die. And it seems like 
that the righteousness is infected with the appalling that like the, what really makes the, the man, as you say, Paul, or the, the uncle, as you say, stupid is, is more that his righteousness amounts to, to a real nothing that he doesn't, he's not doing anything right. That, that it just, it, it fades into the still. Right. Well, I mean, one thing I've really discussed is that he, yeah, he's moonshining. And as you pointed out, Greg, the, the moment where tar water drinks is another moment where in a very literal sense, like the, the uncle's work is kind of passed down into him. Right. Right. And that's also the moment where the stranger becomes his friend and where he feels the devil, you know, reaching down his throat to grab his soul. Yeah. And this is where I, I don't want to go too far down this road because it's definitely reading, but I, I, I couldn't help but view uh, O'Connor's Catholicism here that the, the old man represents the kind of impotency of Protestantism, the idea that you can just go out by yourself and find God. Uh, and I think that O'Connor is pretty much set to that, that that is a meaningless and a futile gesture based on my understanding of the relationship to the Catholic Church that, you know, you'd, you'd need, it's not proper to, you know, appoint yourself a prophet in that way. Yeah. I mean, I like that. That's an interesting idea. I also think if Elijah's right about the dark night of the soul of the world, and if God has sort of withdrawn, you know, the voice of God has withdrawn somehow, then nothing is going to make clear sense <laughs> as like a as like a moral parable, right? Everything will be be jumbled in some hard to articulate, hard to disentangle way. In terms of the intelligence of the of the uncle and, and the school teacher, I think. The status or what the meaning of the intelligence is, is a thing that's in question here, right? It's like to the old man, to the great uncle, the idea that school makes you smart is kind of a ruse, right? It's like school turns you into a, a rubber stamp, you know, and, and, uh, and an indistinguishable member of a herd of people who all think they're intelligent, but all are directed in the same way, you know? So in a sense, probably the uncle would probably say, you know, being stupid is a kind of salvation from that that's what he says about bishop yeah, yeah i mean he basically says it about bishop yeah well I, th- I think just speak more generally to your thought paul i think you're absolutely right that there's not some clear antithesis here where the uncle is a good guy and raver's a bad guy yeah i don't think that's what the book is up to at all and i think what's tricky if we think about the books having morals or having a moral perspective i think what's tricky is that as a narrator, right, whoever the narrator is, the narrator is almost quasi-Ovidian in that they're sort of indifferent or distant or agnostic to the events that are going on. But what gets hard is that this is like, uh, you know, Jane Austen, Jane Austen perfects this like free and direct discourse move, right? So if we look at the first paragraph with Charity, right, which isn't the only place, but is one place, um, the old man was in a position to know what his ideas were. He had lived for three months in the nephew's house on what he had thought at the time was charity, but what he had said he had found out was not charity or anything like it. All the time he had lived there, the nephew had secretly been making a study of him. The nephew who had taken him in under the name of charity had at the same time been creeping into his soul by the back door, asking him questions that meant more than one thing, planting traps around the house and watching him fall into them, so on and so forth. What's going on there, I think, the way I'm reading it at least, is that 
that is clearly supposed to be the uncle's language, right? The repetition of charity is exactly how the uncle would tell that story. And the uncle has, you know, this idiosyncratic definition of charity that you put somebody in your house and you don't try to capture them in your head through your studies or whatever, right? And so the, and yeah, when he's with the lawyer, he says it in those exact words when he's complaining yeah. to the lawyer about the but, but what gets tricky is that there's no quotation marks, right? So we know that's sort of the uncle's perspective. Do we know what the narrator's perspective is on this? My sort of take is that there's a lot of silence and sort of almost distance there, right? And so you kind of just have all of these sort of, all of these distorted, twisted souls to some degree or another in different ways. And the sort of narrator sort of just looking indifferently, right? Presenting them, looking at them indifferently and sort of presenting the way they see the world without too much sort of editorial comment. I think so, that's right, Elijah. I just think the exception ahead. is the sun and the moon. The the natural world. Yeah, per, particularly the, the the celestial bodies, like the way I that think, they I think that's right. judge the characters um, from their like creeping stance. Uh-huh. Well, and I'll say one thing and then I want to hear if Paul Paul buys my my read on that. But um yeah, I don't think she uh, my own reading is I don't think the book is siding with any character. Um and there's not a there's not like a meta moral a sort of meta level moral view at least yet there may be looking at the thing as a whole but not in any straightforward way no no i think that's that's got to be true that's what i was saying it's it's clearly not trying to be one-dimensionally moral and i don't think it's siding with the uncle but i just wanted to cast that critique in light of how we've been holding up his attitude towards death as being somewhat admirable in the light of the, you know, vulgar efficiency of modernity. Like he, at least if our reading, as we've been talking about it so far was correct, he at least stands for that piece of goodness, which I don't think is insignificant if we're, you know, especially if your comment about Vico is correct. And that's one of those like fundamental aspects of being a human being, how we honor the dead, which seems completely plausible to me. So, I mean, I think she's, she's at least holding him up as, you know, recognizing a really important ethical, moral, you know, piece of the equation. Yeah, I think I the, mean, the efficiency, as a, efficiency as a, as a lodestar distorts something essential about the human experience. I think that's a, uh, I don't know if I call it metamoral, but I think that's a perspective that the book holds to some degree, yeah. Right. And I think that's right. And this doesn't necessitate. I mean, Bunce, uh, Buford and his wife seem like noble characters, right? And they mm-hmm. just do these sort of basic requirements of human decency. And it's also possible that the uncle's requests are sort of ridiculous in one sense, but that by refusing them, Tarwater sort of degrading his own soul by taking mm-hmm. this sort of crass, crude attitude towards the dead right yeah another aspect of that that i think you see a lot here is that you cannot escape the fact that even if you don't the earth is for the dead like you cannot escape the fact that you are involved in relationships with you you know people who raised you and who raised them that's just the part of being a human being Hmm. what else do we have left to say 
about well, this first chapter. I just, I just want to add on that, like, I think that what we're seeing here maybe suggests that the problem itself is the false dichotomy between the devil or sorry, uh, Jesus and the self. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is somewhat flimsy, but it seems like there is a critique going on there. And like, maybe, maybe the, the, the reason the uncle seems so ridiculous is be, precisely because he does leave the earth to the dead. Like that's taking like the, the attitude towards um, burial too far. Uh, and so it, when you cast it in that light and then you offer the alternative of the self rather than, you know, God or like our correct, correct attitude towards burial and all that sort of thing, it makes sense to maybe like that tar water should turn to this other alternative because that does seem ridiculous. So maybe there's some sort of, yeah, just some sort of critique going on between those two notions, which I do think are, I, I do think that, 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 that either or to put in you know more Kierkegaardian terms is a very modern way of thinking about our attitudes re towards religion and and whatnot and that's clear that clearly can't be right right I mean I think O'Connor would recognize that in something like Catholicism yeah you might your attitude might more explicitly be towards like community and being a part of a collective and stuff and and whatnot or towards you know Jesus which I think you could say is kind of the same thing if you, a certain reading of Christianity, but that's going to also help perpetuate your own selfhood, right? You know, that, that's, or that's going to, you know, benefit yourself. <clears throat> so that, that I think, you know, there's a way we can think about uh, breaking apart that dichotomy. Sorry, that was a little bit all over the place, but. No, I think that's, I think that's good. Uh, one question I had, I think that sort of, one question I was thinking about, and I think this is a good time to ask it in light of what you just said. Um, very first sentence of the book, the uncle dies, right? So the only way that we, the only way that we get to know him is really through Tarwater's remembering, right? For this entire book, the great uncle is dead, but he yet lives robustly in Tarwater's imagination as he's reliving, right? All of these scenes. That had happened before he died. Um, what do we make of that? Because she easily could have ordered it the other way around, right? It could have just been straightforwardly chronological. The uncle could have died at the end of the first chapter, right? But this whole chapter is essentially memories, and it's mostly memories of dead people that are sort of vividly present to, to the protagonist. Well, I mean, it's, again, it's one very powerful way in which you're, yeah, you're not, I mean, like, you do owe other people something, and it's not like a, I don't know, it's like, this, you, you have, like, this debt to the, <laughs> your forebears, and and the dead is expressed, you know, literally expressed in memories of them. And you just can't, you know what I mean? Like you cannot not have those memories. And the 
if you contrast that with the salesman at the end, you know, who just writes cancer, cancer, cancer over and over again, then eventually writes dead. And he's like, whew, finally get to cross that one off my list. You know, I mean, uh, now in terms of the, meaning of the uncle's character i mean i think we also are learning about the fixations of the boy right i mean he remembers specific things that seem to express the uncle's character in him but if he's already wanting to escape let's say hypothetically let's, if he's if he's feeling that his his calling or whatever his burden the burden the uncle placed on him of being a prophet is something he wants to escape then you know his memories are going to go towards the craziest and most sort of disreputable aspects of the uncle, maybe. And that's like a way where he would start to try and distance himself from that, from that relationship, from that, from that debt. And you can kind of see the stranger um, being a catalyst in that in an attempt to do that also. Right. I mean, there's certainly some tenderness in the relationship in some sense right these two people live together for eight years or whatever it was mm-hmm. but but i also think paul's argument is a forceful one like it's 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 hard not to deny that this guy is just like you know kind of nuts yeah, in some yeah. like oh, real yeah. ways yeah um right they're backwards backwards prophets right living on uh yeah well no, i was just thinking it, shooting you know, intruders could, right right it could be like you know if the hypothesis is I don't want to be a prophet and my uncle's crazy. Then we get a series of memories that, mm-hmm. you know, support that hypothesis, right? Well, he wants to be a prophet. He just doesn't want to eat the bread of life. I don't want to be this kind of prophet. Yeah. He just doesn't want to be hungry for the bread of life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was hilarious when he, the uncle refers to just eating the bread of life at the feet of God forever or whatever. gets <laughs> horrifying it's like revolting yeah. forever because <laughs> i remember actually being a, a boy in church and someone telling me yeah you're just gonna go to heaven and dance around and the angels will be singing they'll be eating the bread of life for the rest of eternity and it's like that doesn't sound i don't want to do that it sounds terrible <laughs> hold on uh i was okay, thinking about yeah, go ahead alex this uh right the discussion brings me to this idea of freedom and how we're talking about the structure of the chapter how the flannery o'connor explicitly lays out that um the elder tarwater has dead died uh and as the chapter develops there's this discussion of how the elder tarwater freed or or saved he saved Francis Marion Tarwater, the young one, <laughs> saved him from the school teacher's world, saved him from going to school, freed him from that life. They're free prophets living in the uh, backwoods. But when the uncle dies, now through this sort of dialectic with the, the voice of the stranger, um, Francis's is uh, Francis Tarwater is realizing that he has some sort of freedom from the uh, the paradigm of living with the elder uncle that he can now 
do something else. And uh, that causes him to make some radical choices. Burn the house down. Well, the very first thing he wants to do is move the fence, right? Change the change his ancestors' <laughs> markings, right? It's his very first thought. So I do right. think you're right about the the sort of freedom as just pure autonomy or or self determination. That seems to be like one of the things that the the stranger's argument gets at that all this time the old man told you that you were free but now that he's dead you're really free <laughs> mm-hmm. just like a kid going into college outside of the parental guidance mm-hmm. the first thing he does is just get drunk <laughs> yep <laughs> Like any good college kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything else we should say. I, I, I was just revisiting the first sentence there, thinking about how it really frames the whole conflict about whether or not the body will go into the ground or be burned, right? Um, and it is that it's essential to whatever's going to happen to Tarwater that that Buford comes along and buries the body and prevents the body from being burned. Mm-hmm. Well, and it does feel like this this is at least this chapter is very much concerned with how we remember the past, mm-hmm. you know. And like they're the the way we framed it at least, and I and I think it's got to be somewhat accurate is that the modern disposition towards the past is to somehow like cleave it off, leave it behind, and um, mm-hmm. the uncle is at least admirable because he knows that that's not that can't be the right way to do it, mm-hmm. and that we mm-hmm. should you know acknowledge the dead in some way, and he might take that too far. I don't know. I mean, maybe my thesis is incorrect there. I guess we'll see maybe, but um, I think that that is really much, very much at stake and why the the starts here and and ends there kind of. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I mean, there's a question of what does it look like to remember rightly looking forward. I do think that going back to the old ways, again, just thinking about, what happens in the first half of the 20th century, right? You have bodies in trenches, you have the Holocaust, you have atomic bombs, you just have horrors that the world could never have dreamed of, right? Mm-hmm. And his, the old Tarwater's position, right? Which would have been like, a, I guess, you know, it's 1952, right? 75 years earlier would have been fairly common. In 1952 seems impossibly archaic, right? I was wondering, actually, do you uh, do you regard so if we're going to think about it in that type of symbolic terms, do you think that the fact that Tarwater, the boy Tarwater's parents and grandmother were all burned up in a car wreck and he's born like directly from that wreck? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's then he's trying to go back to like the generation before the wars and before the Holocaust and before the atomic bombs. And that's kind of see what I mean? 
uh-huh like his uncle's voice is his voice from the past and he's born out of this wreck you know this horrifying wreck where literally his entire like his parents and his everyone you know his parents and his grandparents i think are just like burned up <laughs> he's just born like right there you know that feels to me like heavily symbolic in the way you're describing yeah the change well, the world in the beginning of the 20th century well what's interesting is on the second in the second paragraph it talks about the uncle's education of tar water mm-hmm. his uncle had taught him figures reading writing and history beginning with adam expelled from the garden and going on down through the presidents to herbert hoover right <laughs> so like 1928 or whatever uh-huh. um yeah. and on in speculation but uh, toward the second coming in the day of judgment right he places them in a biblical world history which is yeah feels like, like it's a, a very old way to education right but going up to the present right so they're talking about the new deal conceivably right that kind of stuff um right but the present is contained within the bible's history of the world that's right, right? it's one continuous yeah. real yeah yeah i don't know one it's not the present because he stops before the great depression right because this is to 28 there's he leaves out the whole mm-hmm. you know fdr and truman i guess it's an interesting question of yeah how let's see i mean he answered the boy's the presence to Her- herbert hoover right well, that's good yeah point. that's interesting he doesn't know because the boy's birth that's right well, well maybe, kind of maybe that's when uh Right. Maybe, no, that's when the, yeah. maybe that's when the great uncle really like withdrew from society in a more sustained way would have been like the late 20s because he took the baby out to teach him right i mean that's when he took the right. baby 14 out years the, yeah. yeah yeah so 52 minus 14 would have been 28 yeah. right 30 so if you really wanted to take that to oh. an extreme it's as if they didn't even know about world war ii or the holocaust or any of that yet somehow it's still mm-hmm. sort of but Doesn't the stranger, matter, you know, the stranger you know, seems to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on the Quixotic Quest for the Key. <laughs> Did you have last words, Adam? No, no, no. no I like I like to end at a note of complete uh thank you for joining us in the quixotic quest for the key next week we will continue reading the violent bear away by flannery o'connor thank you good night good night <laughs>